Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. We're in Washington, D.C. today. My sister, Debbie Shore, is with me, and we've got two really special guests. Uh, Jim Wallace, who is the uh, founder, president, and CEO of Sojourners, um, both the organization and Sojourners magazine, and such an important voice in our country on a range of issues from inequality to racial justice to uh, faith. He's the author of, uh, a, I think, at least a dozen books, but I think the most recent is America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and The Bridge to a New America. And you've been at it, Jim, for 40 years, I think, which, you know, Debbie and I are kind of catching up to you. We're at 34 years, but we don't usually have somebody at this table who's been at it longer than us. Well, I started when I was six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while. Well, we're really glad to have you. And our good friend Michael Schlau, who has been a champion for Share Our Strength. He's a James Beard Award winner for the Northeast. He's got restaurants in Boston, L.A., and D.C. Here in D.C., it's the Rigsby, Tico, and Alta Strada. You've just you know, you've been an amazing friend to us for a long time, Michael, and we're, we're thrilled to have you on. I'm thrilled to be here. You've also got a book I should mention called It's About Time that um, I'm sure we'll end up. It's actually about time I write another one. It's It's about time to write another one. (laughs) Yes. Thanks for both being here. There's so much going on right now for us to be talking about. And one of the things, Jim, that when I think about as I, you know, kind of get to the studio all the time, I think about what are the commonalities between these very different guests that we have on. But one of the things that I've heard you talk about a lot, Jim, is uh, the importance of ethics in business, the importance of uh, purpose beyond profit. That's a theme that I think you've developed over time, but it also, I think, fits for somebody like Michael, who's been so engaged in the community. But let's start just by talking about uh, where you are now in this uh, evolution of uh, 40 years being a voice for faith, social justice, anti-poverty work. At Share Strength, of course, we connect to your work and follow your work because of its impact on hunger and particularly hungry kids, which Mm -hmm. is our focus. An Uber driver asked me yesterday, what do you write about? Uh, I said, ethics and politics. He said, oh, man, that must be tough. (laughs) (laughs) You did a book called The Cathedral Within, Revolution of the Heart. To me, that's the issue. The issue is what do we see and what do we feel with our hearts? You two um, could tell the audience about the facts of hunger better than anybody. But the facts never change us. What we see and what touches our hearts is what changes us. So I'm a kid in Detroit, 15, 16, now listening to my city, reading the news, uh, papers, paying attention. And something seemed really big and really wrong uh, in my city, in my country, and nobody in my white world was talking about it or would talk about it. So I tell young people, always trust your questions and follow them to wherever they take you. And my questions took me to the city, uh, a white kid going to black churches for the first time and taking jobs alongside young men just like me, but they were black and I was white. And I realized that we were both all born in Detroit, but had been raised in different countries. And so... I've been changed most in my life. My worldview, as they say, has been changed by being places I was never supposed to be Hmm. and meeting people I was never supposed to meet or know or become friends with. And uh, you you two have done that, Bill and Debbie Shore. You've been places in which you've seen what you 
have encountered uh, has changed your lives. And so finally, it's a matter of where, where we're willing to go and look and listen and whether that changes our lives or not. And, and you said there was something uh, that felt wrong to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I know what you mean in terms of probably the inequality and so forth. But say a little bit more about for you personally, what did you actually see and what touched, what was it specifically that touched your heart? Well, it was about, <laughs> it was about this last book I wrote, America's Original Sin. Uh, it was about racism. So uh, I become friends with Butch. Uh, we're janitors together. Detroit Edison, big, strong guys, like moving the heaviest desks around. He's black and I'm white. We become buddies. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when we had elevator operators. Right. So when those little guys were sick, they put me and Butch in the elevators. they got to give you breaks when you're doing the elevator. So I go into his elevator on his on my break and ride up and down with him and talk, and he comes into mine, and we talk and talk, takes me home for dinner. And his mother says to me, well, so I tell my kids, we're talking about police in Detroit. So I tell my kids, if you're ever, ever lost, can't find your way home, and you see a policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he's gone, come out and find your way home. And when Butch's mother said that to me, she's just like my mother, hmm. not political, militant, cared about her kids, worried about her son's radical ideas. My mom said to her five kids, if you ever lost, can't find your way home, look for a policeman. A policeman is your friend, and he'll take you by the hand and bring you home. So those moments, those epiphanies, we might say, are what changed my life. Uh, And so um, I remember Butch's mom saying that as clearly right now talking to you is, is when I heard her say that. So that changes your whole worldview. How old were you when this happened? Oh, maybe sixteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, just as you, uh, just as um, you were arriving, we were talking with Michael about uh, an early experience that touched your heart, and it was really as it was as personal as could be in terms of um, growing up in a family that was pretty well off, and then your dad left, and your circumstances changed. And as somebody who's been an advocate for our work on. Uh, school nutrition assistance and the SNAP food stamp program and school meals. Um, these are programs that actually you connect oh, they, with they, personally. They, yeah, they had uh, very much a. I had a personal experience in that. <clears throat> As I said, when, you know, when we were getting together this this morning, was that uh, my family needed to use uh, welfare, and back then it wasn't called SNAP, but uh, we had. I'm dating myself here, like you are, Jim, about the uh, the operators of the uh, elevator. I had a little coin that the government gave me to get my very special lunch. And uh, I was saying to Billy that I, I struggle with the term, you know, food insecurity. Um, I don't think it's a strong enough term, you know, and I know we don't use it at share our strength, but it is something you hear often or you see it, you know, written. And it's just not a strong enough term. Um, I was hungry. I wasn't insecure. I was hungry. And... Um, the uh, the notion of like whether it's breakfast after the bell or you know for some kids like myself my mom had gone to work you know she got off of welfare and she got a job but there were moments in my young uh, childhood where we were very very almost I, I hate to use the word but I felt ashamed of the fact that I we couldn't afford the food and uh, that's a case where government helped but we also didn't abuse the system my mother got off of welfare she got a job. 
um, worked her way up in, a, in an office and became the office manager. I mean, it was a great story, and I'm very proud of my mom and how she raised us and never let us really know just how poor we were. We were, we were very wealthy as little kids. And living, then, living where, Michael? Well, we, we grew, I grew up in Brooklyn. That's where I was born. And then uh, I went to high school in New Jersey. And not just middle class, but wealthy, you're saying. Well, like you know, we I, I, everything you I, needed. Think, I think so. You know, I mean, again, as a little kid, I remember just sort of having the best of everything. You know, we had the best clothes. And I can remember going out to nice dinners and things like that. But I was a little boy, you know. And, and I know my grandparents on my biological father's side were wealthy. They lived in a really nice home. They had the best things. And the long and short of it is you really do also come to appreciate it as an adult that you have the sort of highs and lows of life versus just a life of privilege. And it's funny that you what you're talking about, the uh, uh, the dinner table when you went to your friend's house. That is where you see both the commonalities and the differences of how people are, are raised. And I can remember going to my, my friend's house, even though we were... Uh, there were times where we didn't have a lot of money. My mom always put good food on the table. It tasted good. You know, it always tasted really good. Even if it wasn't an expensive item, she was a, my mom was and still is a really good cook. But I would go to my, my friend's house sometimes, and, I was, and, you know, you get like the box of, and I'm not, you know, discounting how delicious it is, but we get like a box of Entenmann's, you know, chocolate cake for a dessert at my friend's house. My mother would never do that. She'd make the cake, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, but at the same time, the idea of, of, of being around the table, breaking bread together, uh, for me and, and the way that I was brought up once my my it's a long story that I won't uh you know bore you with but I was adopted at 40 um but my stepfather who, who well, well, but go yeah. back to the beginning your dad left when you were very Yeah my dad young. yeah my dad left when I was uh 9 years old 8 9 years old and my mom raised us and for a number of years we it was just the four of us my 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 brother my sister and myself and my mom and then my mom met what the the gentleman who would become my stepfather, who really took over our family and, and became my father. And when I turned 40 years old, just as a gesture of love more than anything, it had nothing to do with you know uh, inheritance or anything like that. It was just because he had been my father. Uh, at 40 years old, I asked him to adopt me. So, it, so it, And I did it on Father's Day. So uh-huh. I got adopted at 40. And he was from here in D.C. And so I pay homage to him in a lot of things with the restaurants that I do. And uh, a day doesn't go by because the, the person that I became, uh, a lot of that was really about my parents' kitchen table, right. politics, the ability to argue a point, mm-hmm. the um, patience. I mean, my dad would say, we're not getting up from the table till we're done. You know, and I remember the phone would ring and he would answer and say, Michael can't come to the phone right now. We're eating dinner. You know, good luck with that today, like getting the phone <laughs> out of your kids' out of your kid's hand. So it's, it's, it's different, but it is still a place where I think that um, a lot of good – uh, can come from the from the kitchen table, and it's a place where I, you know, in in my book, it's about time. I wrote one chapter that's called "Time to Get the Family Together," and it's about gathering as a family and talking, and you know, whether it's arguing a point or whatever it might be, it's a it's a great place to communicate and and to to learn. Michael, going back to one thing you said uh, earlier about the coin that you had and the shame that you felt. Mm-hmm. Um, you took the coin into school, and that's what you used to get your free meal. Is that right? Correct. And there was a special line back yeah. there. There was a so different line. A different for line for yeah. so different you know, food. You go back to your friend's table. You would go with your tray to where your friends were eating. Yeah. You wanted to eat with them, and all of a sudden you're looking down, and you have a very different meal on your plate. Um, and your kid, you know, how could and you just little, feel you uh, just you, you feel, feel like every every everyone's looking. Everybody's looking at me. Yeah. I'm under a microscope, and and. How can this be? You know, even as a little kid, you feel that injustice. Like, Did you how? ever feel like not 
getting that meal because you felt so much shame? Well, no, because I was hungry. Yeah. And so, I mean, my, again, my mom would never let us go hungry. I, I don't want to say that there wasn't food in the house. It was just inexpensive food. It was bought in the, in the smartest manner possible. Um, and it was stretched. You know, food would be stretched. So two weeks ago, I went to the inauguration of Peggy Flanagan, the new lieutenant governor of Minnesota, who's now the highest-ranking indigenous native woman at, in any state office in the country. Um, and Peggy opened her inaugural speech by saying, I was the kid with the wrong lunch ticket. I was yeah, that so, kid. So, yeah. and, and, and I had food stamps. My mom was just like your story, yeah. taking good care of us, but her dad had left. And so, and we had housing subsidy. We couldn't have lived without that. And, and if there was no Medicaid, I wouldn't be here because I had asthma. Now, Peggy is uh, uh, is like a daughter to me. I'm her adopted father now, and she is, is means the world to me. And there she was, Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota, who needed those supports as she was growing up. And uh, she gave us this powerful... In fact, it's my column this week in Sojourner's. Her speech is a powerful notion of someone who needed SNAP food stamps, uh, or and now she's she's uh, at the table with the governor, uh, Tim Waltz, who wants to govern with her and bring voices to the table that are almost never there. People most mm-hmm. impacted by our programs are never at the decision-making table. Now she is, and she's going to bring lots of other voices. It's such an important story, what you just told, for people to understand that um, when people are nourished, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's through food stamps temporarily, right, because it's almost always, you know, temporarily, right? It's not years and years and years. People typically move through the system, and when they end up to be, you know, Writers and doctors and political leaders and you know athletes and everything else. And chefs. People need to yeah. and chefs <laughs> right. I mean, and chefs. Yeah. No, yeah. thank you. People need to hear that because it shows the positive side well, and, th- and the positive outcome, not just the negative. And I think that story isn't I, told. I, enough. I think that if there was uh, a, a, a much louder cry that needs to be heard, it's that. And I don't know what the percentages are, so I can't speak you know uh, intelligently about it. But I, I but I'm with you in that. I think what ends up happening is it's, it's used in, in for you know political commentary and, and argument that people are taking advantage, and I think that it'd be really interesting to find out how many people. What's the average? Turn that yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you remember um, our friend Lori Silverbush and right. her yeah. her movie uh, Place at the Table. I mean, anybody that watches that and, and doesn't feel for those people, those were not stereotypical stories, but those are the true stories, you know. So she shows beautifully, I think. Um, how, yes, there's that inner city story about the woman, I think she was in Philadelphia or something, but she shows the suburban and rural stories also of your white kid in Colorado who's yep. hungry and looking at the teacher's sweater and saying, it's red, I'm thinking about an apple. And if you're not nourished, you're not learning. And how we could possibly not devote some more money, wherever it comes from, however we do it, however we have to give back, um, to children's lunches i mean in school it's 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 really unacceptable how small the budget is to feed the children well and the stats that billy and debbie know so well is that a majority of people who get food stamps are working full time that's yes that full-time. i know right. working families you know yeah. working families and i'm a pastor once said i'm worried about this dependency and i said well did you know most people have jobs or more than one and don't make enough money to feed their family he said 
you know, that's got to get out there. <laughs> and the well, average indeed. time on food stamps, Billy, I can't remember the stat, but you probably do. But the average time that a family is on food stamps is something is, like nine months. That's what I right, thought. It's relative. It's not even a year yeah. for most families. Right. But, you know, so half the, the Americans who are on food stamps are children. That's right. Uh, of, of the remaining half, uh, about half of those are disabled or mm-hmm. elderly. So, and, and then we're talking about this relatively smaller portion, the majority of whom are working. The families as, as, as who as are you say, on Jim. Have, have a job. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, one of the things we always talk about at Share Strength is how hunger in the United States, particularly childhood hunger, is such a solvable problem. There, there's a lot of issues that you deal with, Jim, um, that I feel like are broader and more complex, racial justice, inequality, poverty. Hunger is a symptom of those, but it's solvable. You're tackling the really big, the really big issues. And um, one of the things that... Uh, I want to understand is you talked about this kind of early influence uh, on you, what touched your heart, mm-hmm. and then how did you how did you become who you are? Did you set out and you did you say I'm gonna I'm gonna just start my own thing and be my own voice and do this for forty years? I mean, you're in in interesting ways. You're both kind of entrepreneurs. You're a, an entrepreneur in the world of faith, uh, but you've kind of created your own thing, as Michael has in the world of food. What uh, what was the kind of the first concrete piece that gave you the platform that you have today. Coming home from some of those nights, like with Butch and his mom, uh, who talked to me about what she says to her kids about the police, I remember I had a talk with one of the elders in my church. And this guy looked at me and said, Jim, you have to understand, Christianity has nothing to do with racism that's political, and our faith is personal. So here's this issue that is ripping me up inside. I'm just learning about what's happening in my city how black Detroit and white Detroit are different worlds, blocks apart. And he said that it had nothing to do with my faith. So I said, okay, then I want nothing to do with it either. So I split. I left that night in my head and my heart. And I joined the movements of my generation around civil rights and organized at Michigan State University and put all kinds of people in the streets and uh, learned that whole world. But finally... There was a biblical text that I went back to, probably because I I never quite got shed of Jesus, I guess, even though the church kicked me out. (laughs) And and so after a lot of organizing, we shut down all universities in, you know, uh, in 1970. And and I found this text in Matthew 25. Uh, I call it the It Was Me text. And Jesus says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was a stranger, meaning immigrant. That's what the word means, refugee. I was sick. I was in prison. I was being incarcerated. I didn't get health care. And you weren't there for me. And all the people said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and a stranger in prison? And he says something I had never, more radical than anything I'd read in Ho Chi Minh, Karl Marx, and Che Guevara. (laughs) He says, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Mm -hmm. So that Matthew 25 text uh, changed my life, and I signed up to be a follower of Jesus as an activist in the movement. I wanted a foundation for my activism. And one of the great, I love the story about the story about food, because when we came to Washington, we moved into the, one of the poorest and uh, most violent neighborhoods in the city back then. And, and the people in the neighborhood needed food. So a bunch of us organized a simple thing about bags of groceries. What neighborhood was this? This is in Columbia Heights. Yeah. Before it gentrified, mm-hmm. right? So 
people needed a bag of groceries just 20 blocks from the White House. So every Saturday morning, we would 200 families would line up for groceries, and the volunteers needed the groceries too. So we'd all get the groceries, but then we'd pass them out. And so Mary Glover was the one who always said the prayer before we opened the doors and the people came in. And I'd be traveling. I'd want to come home just to hear Mary Glover's prayer because her prayer was the best commentary on that text, Matthew 25, that I had ever read. And I read them all, right? So she says, we're we're holding hands and the food's ready and people are outside. She says, Lord, Thank you, Lord, that my room was not my grave and my bed was not my cooling board. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Then she always prayed this prayer. Lord, we know that you'll be coming through this line today. Mm. So, Lord, help us Mm -hmm. to treat you well. Mm -hmm. Mm. Help us to treat you well. It was about food. It was about sharing. And it was about recognizing Christ himself in that food line. So, for me, these are faith issues down deep, and Mary Glover, she was the glue of the neighborhood. You know, she worked in the daycare center doing cooking. She didn't have much money, but she's one of those people that held neighborhoods like mine together. And Lord, help us to realize you'll be coming through this line today. So help us to treat you well. Really powerful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Michael, as a a guy who's been able to put food on people's tables, not just at your restaurants, but through the anti-hunger work that you do with Share Our Strength and other organizations, how did it start for you? How did you go from uh, being a kid on food assistance to uh, a restaurateur? I think I read that you started washing dishes at 14. Yeah, that that is true. So, um, you know, fast forward, as I, we were a similar story in that, you know, we were not on assistance for very long. As I said, you know, my mom, uh, you know, she got a job. She ended up getting remarried. Uh, my stepfather, uh, you know, uh, really took over our, our family and, and helped us immeasurably. Um, and he uh, eventually he adopted me. And um, it's a great story and uh, one that I'm very thankful for. And we moved to Somerville, New Jersey, where he had he was a lawyer. And my father was one uh, who was very, very much uh, impressed by a hard work ethic, a real, you know, uh, ability to buckle down and work hard and get what you wanted out of life. He he, he came from Washington, D.C. His father uh, owned a shoe store, and uh, they came from very little means, but he put himself through law school, clerked, uh, and ended up becoming a partner in this law firm. And uh, I coveted this stereo. It was the coolest stereo. I really wanted it. it had all these buttons and things that moved during I was 14, and I said to him, his name was Ned. He's unfortunately has passed away, but um, I said to him, Ned, you know, I, I want this stereo. He said, well, I'll make you a deal. I'll pay for half of it. I said, I'm only 14. How am I going to pay for the other half? He said, you're going to get a job. And uh, he helped me get a job in a local restaurant as a dishwasher. I lied about my age. Uh, because you couldn't be 14 at work, and I told him I was 16. And uh, it, I was bitten by the bug, though. I just loved, even though I was washing dishes. What was it about being, especially as a dishwasher? Because we've heard this before, but I, yeah. you know, and it's, we work with so many chefs and restaurateurs, but when they say they've been bitten by the bug, I mean, I'm just always so there's curious a couple, about there's that There's a couple story. of things. There's, there's several relationships that go on in restaurants that um, are were attractive to me. The first and the most obvious is that of, you know, the hospitality provider, whether you're the host, the bu- the busboy, the owner, whatever it is, you're the hospitality provider, and you are sharing a moment with somebody's day, and you are providing food, you're providing drink, you're providing conversation, whatever it might be. I mean, and this was a place that was called the newsroom, and it was kind of the 
uh, precursor to a to a Cheers, that kind of place mm-hmm. where everybody knew your name and they knew what you drank. And uh, but I was I was the dishwasher and I was in a dishwashing room. I was alone. Uh, I wasn't uh, like I was around a bunch of people. And but I had this crazy competition in my head that somehow the cooks and the waiters and waitresses would appreciate when I was the dishwasher that things were better somehow. Things were cleaner, faster, and just done with more organization. This was, from again, from my father's work ethic about just doing a good job and being proud. And that ended up uh, the other the, – so the part of this was the relationship between you know the hospitality provider and, and the guest. But the second part was the interaction between the hospitality providers and the cooks. And there was this camaraderie that I just loved. There was this family within a family. And, so you were um, in the right place. Yeah, that had to have that has to happen. Don't get right, me wrong; they, to... there was cursing and yelling and fighting and sure. uh, you know dating it's and breaking up. Yeah. yeah, so you know the cook was going out with the waitress and they would fight. And, but but it still was a real family, yeah. and I loved it. And um, and at the end of the night, when I would be putting away like the last glasses, and uh, I could remember this like it was yesterday, um, just like you remember your friend's mom's mm-hmm. voice, you know. Coming out with the last glasses of the night, you know, putting them back at the bar. And the bartender's bow tie is sort of off. They're counting piles of money. I'm making like, you know, back then, I think $3 an hour. And um, and they would say, hey, you know, kid, you want to pour us a beer? And I would get to like pull a draft beer from them. And I thought I was the coolest kid. That I was behind the bar <laughs> pouring the bartenders a drink. And I stayed at that restaurant through high school. And uh, they helped me get into culinary school. After I went to college, I, I went to culinary Where'd school. Where did you go to culinary school? To the Academy of Culinary Arts in Mays Landing, New Jersey, where I actually met once. Donald Trump came to our school. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> and um, and, uh, that was, and the school it, survived it? <laughs> uh, I, I think it's still there, but it, it definitely uh, was an interesting experience. And um, But there was something about that interaction. I always loved food, and I always watched, you know, even though I was a jock, I was really good at sports when I was a kid. But I would always watch Julia Child and Graham Kerr and, you know, Frugal Gourmet and all those shows. And I always loved to cook. So you haven't done any – I mean, that's been it since you were 14. Different jobs in the restaurant industry. But did you you do other things? Well, so, you know, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer with him, and I had no desire to do that. Um, I toyed with ideas of like going into acting or something else or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I knew that this was what I wanted. When I went to culinary school that very first day, even though I was not the best uh, cook by any stretch, even though I had just a tiny, tiny bit of experience. And I'll share a story with you in a second about uh, commencement speech. That's very funny. Uh, the first day I put on that chef's coat and the first day I went to class and it was just theory and note taking, I knew this was it, that I was going to be happy doing this. And uh, if I could tell a quick story about commencement, I was telling this last night to our, our culinary director in the company. I was the first student, uh, first alumni ever asked to come back to the school to give commencement speech. And I was nervous, but I got my best suit and I went and I flew down to the school and I was ready you know, to give the speech. And the day before, they had a little gathering for me. And all my, some of my old teachers were still there. And there was this one chef, his name is Rene Wentworth. He was six foot ten before his chef's hat. He was huge, this really tall guy. He he unfortunately passed away as well. But he said to me, Well, and he was so tough as a teacher. He was just brutal. Um but he he would show you sort of what you're about to get into in the restaurant industry. And uh he he leans over, you know, he's six foot ten. I'm you know, I'm six one, but he towered over me. And he said, um, so, Mr. Schlau, we're very, very uh, happy to have you here, uh, and you're the first alumni to ever give commencement speech. I said, Chef, you know, I'm really flattered to be here. It's an honor. You know, you guys were really great to me. And he said, you know, we follow your career. 
and we're very, very impressed, and we're really happy with all that you've done. We were got, we got together yesterday. And we were all having coffee and discussing the fact that you were coming back to give commencement speech and that you were the first alumni. And uh, we all agreed that we knew you were going to be a great success. I said, Chef, thank you. So, he said, oh, uh, please allow me to finish my sentence. Uh, he said, we, we, we knew that you were going to be a great success. We just didn't think it would be in cooking. <laughs> and I said, why? He goes, you were just not the best cook at the really? school. He said, you were, you were personable and everything. He said, but you, there were so many kids that had more experience than me. And where I go with this is, and this can be a lesson learned for any industry and anything you do, is the thing that my dad did teach me is that when you get out of school, go work for the best. And don't be worried about money because that's not the definition of success is how much money's in your wallet. Are you doing something you love? Are you around like-minded people? Are you enjoying each day that you do this? Because it's work, and it doesn't have to be work. I, I'm so happy every day. You know, well, no, I'm just hearing you talk about it, and I, I, I don't know if Billy would agree, but I think I'm a really good cook, okay? Really good cook. But then I realized when I have people over to my house, I, you know, I think about it all week. I go through all my recipes. I love to do the shopping. I love to set the table. I love to spend the day cooking, mm-hmm. all these things. I don't like to do it two days in a row. And that's what told me that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm in the right place. Yeah, cook, cook no. about I'm, I'm usually but, over on the second day. <laughs> no, but, but both of you, I guess, so what I'm, and all of us at this table, I mean, Jim, obviously, I mean, you've, you know, 40 years of this work, Michael, your whole life, yeah. Billy and I, our whole adult life, we're still doing something that we love. We're still learning. We're still improving. We still have that, like, North Star, right? A hundred percent. That's, and yeah. I think that's what keeps us evolving. And so I guess one question I have for both of you is, because I was thinking about it for Billy and I after 34 years, we had a moment after 20 years, and we have a lot of moments, but we had a really big moment after 20 years around what do we want to be in the next 20? We learned a lot. We've done a lot. We feel good about our work. But how do we want to really move forward in the next 20 years? We, have, we all have those moments. When, when Billy talked about food as a, as a symbol, as a, and you talk about dinners, I, who you have dinner with in this country is really important. Hmm. Who's around the table? So that's an important question to ask ourselves about what kind of society we're going to become. And food, and we, you talk about your work more as a calling than just a profession, right? There's something about that Absolutely, restaurant yeah. and that place. So here's a, here's a great story about chef and fasting, okay? A couple of years ago, we had a big fast to draw attention to the need for a comprehensive immigration reform in this country. We had a big tent right next to the Capitol, and immigrants, undocumented people, began to fast. And they wanted me to commission them and help put crosses around their neck. Finally, when Eliseo Medina, after two weeks of just water, got weary, I stepped in to pick up the fast with a bunch of faith leaders. So there we are, fasting in this tent. And Obama comes and members of Congress come. And then this, uh, this guy comes in to visit, and I hear he's a chef, Jose Andreas, you know. And he's from Spain, and he cares about immigration. So there he is, and he's visiting, meeting all these immigrants. And he's just so moved by it all. And I'm leading the fast, and I've been almost two weeks on water. And he says, oh, he says, uh, when is the fast done? I said, well, we'll be over in a few days. He said, I will make you the biggest meal, the best meal you've ever had in your life. And I said, well, that's wonderful, Chef, but when you come off a fast like this, you can't eat a meal like 
like that. He's, oh, oh, what can you eat? I said, well, broth. He said, I will make you the best broth you've ever had. I love that. And when we ended the fast, he brought this broth. Really? And it was the best broth I've ever had. And here he is now feeding people, uh, federal workers. Uh, he know, was our chef. first guest on uh, yeah. Ad Passion and sure. Stir, our very first so, one. So, and he was going to take it to so. So, if this if this uh, shutdown had gone on, we were taking prayers to the Congress and senators on both sides. I wanted to pray with faith leaders to end this stupid, uh, unconscionable shutdown. If that didn't work, I was going to go to to Jose Andreas and to you and say, <laughs> okay. You remember the story that Jesus started feeding the 5,000? Mm-hmm. So said, let's feed 5,000 federal workers on the mall of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. It didn't ever happen. And it still may. We may go back, back to that. But I thought, what a powerful idea of chefs providing food and feeding 5,000 federal workers and faith leaders coming around to be a part of that, that stuff. Food is a symbol, you know. And fasting is some, sometimes something we do when we're coming on to Lent and we may, many of us call for prayer and fasting and action because of this crisis that we're in. We don't know what's going to happen. So how do you prepare yourself? How do you mm-hmm. be spiritually available for the actions and risks you have to take? And I think food and fasting becomes a central part of that. For me. Well, M- Michael, I, I was just thinking back when we were talking, you spoke so eloquently uh, beforehand about uh, an experience you had with food with your daughter uh, at a children's hospital. And to me, that yeah. there's it was rich in both, uh, both literally rich but symbolically rich as well. And I was wondering if you'd share that. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, the, the food industry in general, especially restaurants, we are called upon regularly, daily, um, to figure out a way to help people. Um, you know, there is, I don't know of another industry that supports charities as much as – and we don't do it – I think, again, it's, it's sort of an extension of the hospitality component of what mm-hmm. we do. But when it hits home, it's even you know, that much more impactful and that much more personal. And so um, the idea of giving back in whatever form that is and whatever you can afford to do – you know, we're not wealthy people, my family. We, we make a living, and but you know, we try to do whatever we can, and my wife is a big – advocate and proponent of my children learning that. You do a good job, things will come your way, but you know we have to give back. Well, my daughter, my oldest daughter, uh, was very ill when she was uh, about six or seven years old, and we stayed for an extended period of time at Boston Children's Hospital. She's perfectly fine now, and they did an amazing job of taking care of her, but she couldn't eat. She was being kept alive intravenously. We were there for quite a while. So two, two things that had happened during that time was one is... Uh, I think she was truly appreciative of the care she was getting. And, you know, my wife sat vigil, you know, bedside uh, for all the weeks that we were there. And there was no food, really, um, that she wanted to eat. She was, as I said, she was you know, being kept uh, going intravenously. But she would say, but I want to I smell it or I want to look at it. I want to taste it. I might spit it out. And uh, so I would make her whatever she wanted. I'd go back to the restaurants or home and make her whatever she wanted and bring it back. And she couldn't eat it. Um, but then after she got home, she uh, she ate like she was a linebacker. She she just ate everything <laughs> in sight. But as a way of giving back, um, I got together with um, some of the powers that be at the hospital. We did a few huge fundraisers. Uh, they were very, very expensive. They were $5,000 a plate. We brought the big movers and shakers of Boston and sold out these events where we were able to raise a lot of money to create basically like a little food hall in the hospital. So you can go get a salad, you get a smoothie, you can get a 
pizza, whatever it might be. But we also created a uh, chef's playground, a demo kitchen. And the idea was that for the parents that are stuck bedside with their kids, you know, wanting to sit vigil, wanting to be there for every action, every movement, um, give them just a few hours of norm- normalcy. Um, and so what we did is we created this program where the parents, we give them a beeper. God forbid something happens to their child while they're downstairs with us. We beep them and they would come right back up to the room. But my daughter and I, the other night, um, fed 25 parents um, a five-course dinner with a little cooking show and demo. And uh, you saw their faces when they walked in, and I remember feeling exactly the way they looked, which was a bit ashen, a bit in shock that they were there and the circumstances of here. You had this perfectly normal, healthy child, and now you're living in a hospital. And how can we turn their, their day around for just a little bit? So my daughter walks in. And she had just come from a basketball game, and, and the whole idea was to show them that they were in the best place possible and that their child would hopefully be okay and that they would share a story like this. And the idea of giving back – well, at the end of the event, my and my daughter was very animated. She was miked you know, so she could talk to the parents, and there was a speaker system that we've created there and everything. But at the end of the, at the, end of the dinner, uh, the most poignant moment and the most uh, you know, touching moment was a, a, a little girl comes up to the uh, – to the stand where we're doing our demo, the the demo kitchen, little African American girl, um, you know, in in you know a hospital gown, she's got a cap on, she's got some sort of breathing apparatus up her nose, and she could barely talk. And I I think she was a burn victim because I really I, I saw she was really struggling. I could see her hands. And anyway, she in her little whisper of a voice, she said, "Well, what are you making?" And um, we said, "Well, we're about to make dessert." And her eyes lit up. Mm-hmm. And my daughter, just on cue, just knew it was her moment. And she sort of left the little stage and went and took the girl by the hand and made her dessert and then sat with her for the rest of the dinner instead of finishing it with me. And all the parents were watching this and just, you know, mm-hmm. crying that that my daughter would think like this. But we got in the car and, and I said to her, well, what did you think? She said, I want to do that every month. Mm-hmm. And that so was sweet. like for me really beautiful that she wanted to do it again. And she just made her feel good. She knew that that hospital took a good care of her but also that she could do something for those parents and make them feel good for a few hours. And by the end of that dinner, the parents had a smile on their face. They were laughing with each other. They all agreed to meet each other on the floor. They didn't know each other before this. This was an opportunity for them to be able to share a meal together. We talk about the importance of the table. So as we're, as we're feeding them, they're also telling each other their stories about what they're going through together, and now they're mm-hmm. a support system for each other. It was beautiful. It was, it, See, with that's such a great story, and we could, Billy and Debbie could tell all kinds of stories about dinners they've had or meals that have changed things. That's why I want to ask who we're having dinner with. Yes. When you talked about who was there, that's a life-changing moment. Yeah. But who we're having dinner with is part of our problem in our racialized geography yeah. in this country which is not accidental. It's purposeful. So as a you once, I'm told, had a 92-mile-an-hour fastball. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have so it anymore. I'm a, <laughs> I was a Little League baseball coach for a long time. Both my boys, one's playing college baseball, the other one's going to. And so dinner, dinner tables. Our house was the clubhouse, you know. When I see dads, but even more moms, talk to each other about their hopes and dreams and fears for their children, it's the most bonding thing. And but also, that doesn't happen across racial lines in and, this country. Well, it doesn't. But also, isn't it important, like, I know at our house, when, especially when we moved to Somerville, New Jersey, 
our house was that house that was always open yeah. to everyone. So right. if I just walked in with one of my teammates, for example, mm-hmm. they were always welcome at the dinner right. table, always. Right. And my mother just felt, and my dad felt that an open house was an important component of the community that you're not supposed to be, you know, and I hate the, to use the term, but building walls right now. And instead, it's supposed to be open doors. Exactly. And so while I'm working on, we're working on lots of things, mass incarceration, racialized policing, voting rights, all of those things. In this conversation, it shows again how that dinner table, who you share food with, who you share your lives with, who you share your hopes and dreams for your kids with. 75% of white Americans in this country today have not one significant relationship with a person or family of color in their social circle. Mm -hmm. And when moms and dads talk about their kids, it's deeply bonding. So while I want to change these policies that are so destructive, but I think we've got to start having dinner together and hearing about our hopes and dreams for our kids, that's the bonding that will make what this new America is going to become. Right now, the soul of America is at stake in this crisis. And I say the integrity of faith. Jesus had dinner all the time, last supper. Things at the table that happen to people are profoundly life-changing. So who are we having dinner with becomes the question. How do we – so so someone's listening to this conversation and they're like – Man, Jim Wallace is right. What do I do? How do I begin to implement what you're talking about? If what you said is true, I don't even have anybody of color in my social circle. How do you kind of cross that bridge or how do you get onto that bridge so that you can start to change things? Because I feel like race in particular is something that I feel like a lot of us, you know, talk about, acknowledge. We know it's a root cause of a lot of the issues we're, we're dealing with, but, but then we move on. Yeah. Right, and we don't really come up to confronting in a hard way, which which I think you know something about. Yeah. A lot of people older listeners remember the whole Rodney King thing and Simi yeah. Valley, and so the World Council of Churches had a commission, and they sent us out there. What happened and why? Well, we all knew that, but so we're in, when Rodney King was Rodney King was beaten, beaten by, by a police, police. officer, yep. then then the officers weren't convicted. So in Simi Valley, we visited. There is two Methodist churches, one black. And one white. Now, Simi Valley, they're both affluent, both Methodist. They had never met and never talked. Hmm. We got them together for a conversation. And a black mother says, my son is a Los Angeles Police Department officer. He's in the LAPD. And I get so scared when he takes off that uniform and goes undercover. And this white mother across the room says, oh, I'm, I've got a son the same age as yours. I, I can imagine how how much you would be afraid because he, when it was uniform and there'd be those gangs and the black mother says, no, it isn't the gangs I'm afraid of. It's the white LAPD officers who see my son now as a young black man with no police uniform on. And this white mother was, you could see she was astonished. She'd never heard anything like that before, that she was afraid for her son's welfare because of white LAPD officers who would treat him like a young black man. And I was watching to see if the white mother would believe the testimony of the black mother. Mm -hmm. And I watched her, and bless her heart, she did. Now, Butch's mother, who I talked about before, and my mother, if they'd have known each other, they would have loved each other. And my mother would have known why Butch's mother is afraid for her kids. Every black parent in America today is afraid of their kids walking out the door in the morning. 
instead of arguing that, get to know a black parent. There's a church, workplace, all kinds of places where we interact, but we never sit down to dinner and talk and build the kind of trusting place where we can hear each other's stories to build. That's what I call the bridge to a new America. We're talking to police forces and uh, pastors in the community having a conversation about what it means to be close enough to a community that everybody gets safer. You, police officers and and people. On the you've answered a question I had for you earlier on, and Billy kind of teed it up, which was, you know, we're just living in such an unbelievable time, and things are happening so fast that we can't even focus on the bad thing that happened yesterday. <clears throat> but this divide that we're in in this country, this horrible conflict that we're living in, I I ask myself, you know, when it's all over, whether it's over in 2020 or whenever it's over. And we have a new, you know, kind of leader around these issues. That's one. That's one thing. But how do we put this poison back in the bottle? How do we get rid of what's been spilled? And I think you've kind of. That's one thing we can do, right? Is to really think hard about who we're talking to, well, who we're spending it, time with. It, it, and, you know, it, I can only speak personally, as any of us can. It, it starts with your parents. It's what are you taught as a child. That's where it starts. I mean, my mother, I, I, although I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, as I mentioned earlier, there were lots of diff- different ethnic groups in, in our neighborhoods. But my mom, I could remember, you know, just driving home that everybody should be treated the same constantly over and over and over again. I was never allowed to use any sort of derogatory terms about somebody that was different because of their race or their religion. Ever it just wasn't tolerated, let alone, and you know, I'm as old as everybody else at the table, and and I mean, especially about like what their sexual preference might have been. We were never allowed to judge somebody on their personal preferences or their race or their right. skin color, nothing. And to this day, I'm very, you know, I, I would consider myself to be incredibly open-minded. I work in a business where I am around every type of uh, person you could imagine. And they're all into different stuff on their personal lives. But at work, we come back and we, we, we have a common cause and a common purpose, and that's to take care of each other. In my company, we have a saying that we're not just here to take care of the guests. We're here to take care of each other. When, when God forbid, when somebody has a crisis in their family, in our restaurants, our restaurant family comes to each other's aid. And we do it for other restaurant mm-hmm. groups, too. You know, in Boston right now, um, where's I, where I make my home, terrible story where a, a young dad. He's a, he was a bartender. Everybody loved him. He passed away unexpectedly. He was sick. He got, he got sick very quickly. The whole community has come behind him. There's a, they're raising money for his family. The whole restaurant community has come out. And he wasn't some, you know, white kid from the suburbs. He was an immigrant who moved here mm-hmm. and, you know, has, has given joy to other people. And so everybody has come out for his support. To and they knew him. Family. And I think that's the key because they actually have yeah. spent time together. We were raised, I think, in the same way, but we also were able to see real examples of it in our house. You but know? if you have a closed-minded parent that then you right. know, sells that evil, closed-minded approach to their kids, that kid's going to do the same thing. Sure. It's going to be very hard for them to break that. And so those kind of relationships, taking care of each other, we call it the common good, is critical. Then you got to get to the how this is systemic and structural. My parents were just like yours. Never any toleration of racial jokes, okay? But my dad came back from World War II as a naval officer and got what all the GIs like him got, a GI Bill, free education, an FHA loan for a house. When your government provides an education 
and a Hauser middle class. None of the black sailors on my dad's ship, no black GIs got the GI loan. Isn't that remarkable? That's we, we just talked about the GI bill. That's structural. Yeah. Right. And so my neighborhood that's... was all GIs, white GIs, heading up three bedrooms. And ranch plays houses. out for decades, by the way. Plays out for decades. Right? Has repercussions so for a long we time. We are systemically divided yeah. from yeah. each other. So, how do we get past those systems and change the policies that create that so we can have that feeling in a restaurant? Or around a dinner table or a baseball team. I could tell you stories about some team member or their parent. And our house is the clubhouse like your house was where everyone gathers all the time. But if you're not in places where you know each other's stories, why doesn't Jamal get the job and Harry does because of his name? All the stats show that, right? So how do we change those systems and structures? And how does this crisis reveal what was already true, already going on? For a long time, Abraham Lincoln talked about leaders should appeal to our better angels. Mm -hmm. But this president appeals to our worst demons. And he calls them up, and they're right below the surface. And Jack's out of the box. He's not going back in the box. So how do we use this moment to go deeper, to go deeper into what we say we Mm -hmm. we believe? It's an opportunity. Uh, It is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Our house was also kind of the clubhouse in our neighborhood. Absolutely. Our our parents didn't speak ill of anybody except my sister's boyfriends (laughs) occasionally. (laughs) But otherwise, I think they were... Well, we you had know, the Minio's we pizza the same on way. our porch and Iron City beer, so that attracted a lot all of the people, time. too. Yeah. Well, to all of you at this table, Jim Wallace, Michael Schlau, my sister Debbie Shore, uh, this is such a great conversation. I really don't want to end it prematurely. I'd love to keep it going. So let's pause here and end up with what will be a second episode of uh, Add Passion and Stir with our special guests, Jim Wallace and Michael Schlau. Debbie Shore, thanks yeah, as yeah. always. Um, thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Our producer, Paul Whittle. Woody and District Productive, the best place to do podcasts. Um, and to our team at Share Our Strength and Kelly Griffin, thanks for making this happen. Uh, we hope if you enjoy the podcast, you'll go to Add Passion and Stir, look at our previous episodes, uh, rank them, rate them, subscribe, let your friends uh, know about it. I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. 